Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who pitched 16 years in the majors with the Chicago Cubs, Tampa Bay Devil Rays, Toronto Blue Jays, New York Mets, and Baltimore Orioles. He was named to the Major League Baseball All-Star Game and posted a career-best 3.03 ERA in 1996. September 18, 2006, he had one of his best performances of the season as the Mets clinched the National League Eastern Division Championship. He pitched six and a third and a third inning, allowing only three hits, three strikeouts, and a 4-0 win over the Florida Marlins. He has a reputation as one of the slowest working pitchers in the majors, earning the nickname of the human rain delay. He also has a reputation of being a reliable starter who could eat plenty of innings and stay on, off the injured list. It is a pleasure to welcome the man who is 11th on the New York Mets all-time wins list, Steve Traxel, the Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Mark. AJ, how's it going? Going good, and anytime we can talk baseball uh, other than work stoppages, it's, it's good. So uh, we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, but that. nobody's so, working right now, so it's really not that <laughs> That's true. So you attended Troy High School in Fullerton, where you played on the junior varsity team until you were called up to varsity during the playoffs of your junior year. You pitched six and two-thirds innings in that lone appearance for the varsity Warriors that season. We mentioned your reputation as an innings eater and your high school coach, Dan Robinson, noticed it back then saying you were an old time pitcher, a guy that would say, just give me the ball and let's get this over with. So when and where did that mentality come from? Uh, You know, I can't really think of one specific, you know, thing that brought it out. It was just, uh, you know, when I started a game, the whole point was to win the game and to finish the game. And, uh, you know, being in, being in Southern California, you know, we had the angels here. So it was a huge Nolan Ryan fan. So, you know, maybe watching him go after it quite a bit, you know, probably influenced some of that, but yeah, I just, I just always figured if, you know, if I'm the one on the mound, we might as well stay out there until the game's over. So after high school, you go on to Fulton College. You earn the All Orange Empire Conference Honorable Mention Honors. The following year, your first team at All OEC. Um, after spending three years in Fulton, you transfer to California State University in Long Beach for your senior year. But before joining your new team in the fall, you played summer ball in the Alaska League, going 4-0 with a 0.24 ERA. Over half a season. That's one of those leagues that AJ and I love. We love talking about the Cape Cod League and the Alaska League. Mm-hmm. What was the Alaska League experience like for you? Oh man, it was it was actually a lot of fun. Um, I had actually been there a couple times previously, just for vacations growing up, and uh, yeah, just uh, the opportunity to go up there and play really high level competitive baseball before going to uh, Long Beach State. Um, there was a lot of guys from Long Beach on the team. There was a bunch from Texas and, you know, UC Irvine. So it was a lot of D1 schools that were uh, represented. And, um, you know, we made it to the College World Series that year. And I remember pitching against uh, Wichita State. And there was like three guys on the Wichita State team. Two of them were on my team from Alaska and a couple of them were from other teams. So uh, 
you know, just that that level of baseball going into a, a Division One year for college. Is, I think it was a great tune-up and uh, just to see what else was out there across the country as far as competition. What about the competition? So, What's it like playing and seeing glaciers in the background? <laughs> it was awesome, man. We we I was one of my roommates was from Texas A and M, and I don't know how it must have happened before I got there. He got in in touch with the state veterinarian for the state of Alaska, and he took us on this float plane ride on a day off. So you know, take off out of a lake, and he's flying us over glaciers and into these valleys, and we're looking at bear and moose and. You know, all because they went. To, they were from the same school. You know, they both from Texas A and M. So, uh, I mean, just an amazing experience. Besides what was going on baseball wise. So you finish up an eleven and six record, two point seven eight ERA in your only season at Long Beach, helping obviously the the best college team nickname ever, the Dirtbags, the College World Series. You're knocked off in the second round by Creighton the day before your team was eliminated. Though you're selected in the eighth round of the ninety one Major League Amateur Draft. 215th overall by the Chicago Cubs. And, and what's beautiful about going back and looking, you know, we people, you know, pronosticate what this guy is going to be like, you know, you look back at the 22 pitchers drafted in the first round, only one of them has more wins than you. And all of the pitchers taken in that draft of all of them, only three have more career wins than you. What does that tell you about what you were able to accomplish, you know, not having the luxury of being a high draft pick? Right. Well, I mean, I still considered eighth round pretty high. Um, I think back then maybe it was something that the Cubs instilled in us was anything in the first 10 rounds they considered pretty high picks. Um, but, yeah, there was definitely uh, a lot of guys that I saw picked ahead of me where, you know, my hubris or maybe my confidence, I kind of was scratching my head a little bit. <laughs> couldn't understand because, you know, when I faced them in college or I saw them pitch, I didn't think they were that much better to me to, to warrant that. And uh, I was I was actually a little disappointed to be to go that late. Um, the Cubs had actually offered me a contract after the Alaska League and uh, which which I turned down because I, I felt like I needed another year of seasoning at the college level. And also, you know, wanting to work with Dave Snow um, at Long Beach State. But. Yeah, to see myself go down to the eighth eighth round, I was a little disappointed. Uh, but then again, maybe, you know, that put a little chip on my shoulder that, hey, you know, I'm going to show you guys how much better I can be or, or am than all these guys picked ahead of me. So, uh, you know, the, the Cubs actually had a great draft that year. I think there was uh, eight players out of the first 12 rounds all made it to the big leagues, which is yeah. a pretty rare accomplishment. And uh, but, yeah, I think it kind of put a little fire in me to, to prove them all wrong. So you make your way up the Cubs minor league system and you get called up uh, Florida Marlins at Wrigley Field. You're, you're playing on September 19th, 1993. What do you remember uh, about, you know, just that first day and that first start at Wrigley? Oh, I mean, that whole entire week was was just amazing. Um, being a triple A, we were in the triple A championship. Um, I had just pitched game six and one to get us to game seven. And uh, Marv Foley and Bill Early, the co uh, manager and pitching coach, called me in and said, hey, just want to let you know, after tomorrow's game seven, you're going to Chicago. You're getting called up. But you can't tell anybody. <laughs> and you can't tell anybody in the in the clubhouse because eight other guys are going with you, and we have to win game seven tomorrow first. <laughs> so I had to keep that to myself quiet for 24 hours. We ended up winning game seven, having this huge celebration. And then to find out, you know, that we're all go, nine of us are all going to Chicago. So pack up the apartment, you know, after 
three hours of sleep, a party in, get to Chicago, walk into Wrigley, walk down the stairs, and, and uh, Jim Lefevre's down there uh, at the bottom of the stairs, goes, you must be Traxel. I go, yep. And he's like, where the F have you been? I was like, what, what, what do you mean? I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, I'm on time. He's like, no, I wanted you here three and a half months ago. <laughs> and they wouldn't let me they wouldn't let me bring you up because you weren't on the roster so uh that was a pretty quick introduction to how how fun a big league clubhouse could be and uh yeah that, that first game uh was just amazing uh i remember you know I, I was, unfortunately i lost i lost on a squeeze <laughs> uh, alex arias dropped a squeeze bunt down on me um matt walbeck was you know a triple a catcher caught the first game lost three to two but uh, yeah, I remember those first four hitters I faced in the first inning like it was yesterday. You know, I remember Chuck Carr flying out to center. Brett Barbary got a ground ball to second for my second out. Uh, Jeff Conine had three-one fastball for a home run, and Arrestus Destrada got the third out and was also my first big league strikeout. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget that first inning ever. So the transition from the minor leagues to the majors includes learning about the major league hitters and the hitters learning about you. And early on, the opposing hitters were noticing something about your delivery, that you weren't concealing your grip and your glove so the hitters could see what was coming, essentially. Who first told you about this and how hard was it to correct that? Um, it, it's, I think it's something, once you learn that you, you've done it, you you constantly uh, look for it in tapes. Um, when I got to New York, you know, uh, Robbie Alomar was great at it. And, uh, you know, he, he, he was taught by his dad. Um, I spent a little bit of time in Toronto. Uh, Cito Gaston was fantastic at it, which is probably, he probably taught Robbie as well when Robbie was there. And, uh, and we would start doing it in the dugout as well. We would be doing it to try to pick up opposing pitchers and then also at the same time help out our own pitchers. So uh, um, it depends on how, what it is you're doing. If it's something simple, like a finger wag, tilt to your glove you know those those types of things are pretty easy um some guys you see they wrap the ball behind them when they're throwing a breaking ball or they don't on a fastball that's probably a little bit more difficult um i remember mike pelfrey one time we were watching uh, his bullpens and uh he would stick his tongue out on all of his breaking balls and he wouldn't do it on his fastball and uh luckily we picked that up in the bullpen <laughs> so we were able to correct it before we went out on the mound but um it's amazing the things that, you know, that happen that some guys are able to pick up. You hear a lot too with base stealers, you know, they're able to pick things up on guys moves to first. And, you know, that's, that's what makes them so great when they're able to do it. So your rookie season of 94, you begin to impress your teammates immediately with your control and the ability to work hitters on the inside and the outside and the black. And your teammates start calling you Maddox Jr. because of the comparisons to the former Cub and future Hall of Famer, Greg Maddox. You know, I have to imagine that that comes with a great deal of pressure for a 23-year-old rookie to to be you know, not only just a, a pitcher in baseball, but a mm -hmm. former Cub and, and a guy who's at that point at the, the top of the game. You know, right. how difficult was that? It was actually a little, yeah. Um, I think a couple of reporters actually picked up on it and started, you know, bringing it up to me. And uh, yeah, Greg Maddox was the guy all through the minor leagues. We were all trying to emulate um, being in the Cub system and, uh, yeah, being a control guy, I really tried to take to that. But uh, to have that put on me is I have to take his place, a guy that just won 20 games, won Cy Young, and then left town. And uh, mm -hmm. now I'm supposed to be that guy again. Um, it was difficult. It took, a, it took a little bit of time for me to mentally put that out and, and not focus on it. 
And uh, luckily I had a lot of veteran support, you know, guys that I could talk to and, you know, help me through that process and say, Hey, no, you just do what you're going to do. You keep doing the, you know, the way you've done it your entire rookie year and through your career. And you'll, you'll end up getting your own, uh, you know, say nicknames. Unfortunately, I got <laughs> a different one than, than I was hoping maybe to get, but, but the results would follow, you know, if, if the, the work was put in and the process was, was good. We're just waiting to see who's going to be nicknamed the Human Rain Delay Junior. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, so, there are a few of them. There's a few before me too. Apparently, but yeah, yeah. yeah. So a, over the next two, two years, <laughs> over the next two years, uh, with that pressure, you can buy a twenty and twenty-two record, um, but a sub four ERA. Um, you're in your first and only All Star selection in '96, and you vividly were able to recount those first three batters that you faced against the Marlins. This is certainly different. When you get to face, Mm -hmm. you know, Sandy Alomar Jr., Cal Ripken Jr., and A-Rod. What do you remember uh, about that inning and being an all-star and facing those three guys? Um, uh, Yeah, um, the pop-up. Sandy Alomar had a pop-up. I think it might have been first or second pitch. Um, A-Rod hit a pop-up as well. I think it was first pitch. And, uh, yeah, then Cal Ripken Jr. was up third. And I don't remember if it was a first or second pitch. I almost hit him in the head with a fastball, which (laughs) – and I think it was also the year when he had his nose broken during the, the uh, team picture. Um, God, who was, I can't remember who it was, but they, they were standing on the benches and somebody had their spikes on and slipped and elbowed Cal in the nose. I think broke his nose the day before. So he had that and then almost gets hit in the head by me. So, um, yeah, I, go, I remember going three and one on him, just challenging, throwing a fastball down and away, and he hits it absolute rocket ground ball right at Ozzie Smith and he picks it like it was nothing and then slips it over to first and uh you know um coming in as a as a reliever in that game which I'd never done I remember throwing to, to Todd Hundley who was catching me down the bullpen I threw my entire pregame warm-up to get ready for that one inning so I think I threw 60 pitches down in the bullpen and it only threw seven pitches in the game and it was over before I realized it had even started so uh yeah, it was it was great. It was over way too quick, and unfortunately, I never got to go back. But uh, just a tremendous, tremendous, uh, exciting experience. So on September eighth of that year, you joined another former Met, Tracy Stallard, in the record books by giving up historic home runs. He gave up Roger Maris's sixty first. You got Mark McGuire's sixty second to break mm-hmm. Maris's record. Yeah, nineteen ninety eight. Yes. As I understand, what really made you angry was not giving up the home run ball but the reaction of one of your teammates, Sammy Sosa. Can you sort of explain what went on there and what got you so angry? Um, oh, I definitely was not alone in the, in the anger department <laughs> when that when that happened. Um, yeah, it was just, you know, he hit the home run down the line. Um, we were in a big playoff race. The Cardinals are, our, you know, the rival of the Cubs. And, uh, yeah, Sammy came running in from right field to join in Mark's celebration at home plate. And, um yeah, he had to pass a few guys on our own team coming in there. So there, that was the beginning of the heat. And, um, yeah, it was being discussed in real time on the mound by all the guys in the infield. And even a couple of the umpires came in and were, were like, dude, what the hell is your right fielder doing celebrating with the other team? And, yeah, we, we really, really didn't know what to say. We were just kind of shaking our head like, I can't believe that he's doing this. So, uh, um I mean, it made for great TV. You know, the fans obviously enjoyed it. You see it on TV all the time in the replays. But uh, in real time, with us being in a pennant chase and trying to make it the playoffs and, 
still having a game to win afterwards. Um, yeah, it rubbed uh, a lot of people on the field and in the dugout and even some in the front office <laughs> the wrong way. So what happened when you got back into the clubhouse? That's a good question. Uh, I was uh, not I, – I got taken out of that game early because it kind of fell apart afterwards. Um, I Unfortunately, being a superstar, Sammy was um, probably nothing. I don't even know if anyone even brought it up to him, to be honest with you. <laughs> So that same season, when the regular season ends, the Cubs are tied at the top of the wild card standings with the Giants, forcing that tie-breaking game. You get the start. You pitch six and a third shutout innings, giving up just one hit, striking out six, keeping Bonds, Kent, and Carter off the board completely. Cubs win that game 5-3, clinching the first playoff berth in nine years. Where does that game stand in the highlights of your career? I mean, it's easily top five, you know, top seven, probably, you know, um, just the uh, the electricity of what was going on in the city prior to that. Uh, having that opportunity to clinch earlier and that's not doing it. And then just the electricity of the stadium, you know, that was the year that Harry Carey had passed. So that was a big thing for, you know, from a fan standpoint and uh yeah, just the winner go home. You know, it's just, it goes all the way back. It's like, you know, if it's that type of a game on the line, I wanted to be the guy with the ball and go as deep as I could. And if not, you know, if I couldn't finish it and um, just unbelievable, unbelievable electricity. And probably the first time I'd felt that level of fan excitement and been on the mound for it. So sometime between the, the latter part of your stint with the Cubs and you signed with the Mets as a free agent, you perfected, if that's really the word, what became your signature, the very deliberate, deliberate delivery that got you the nickname, you've been rain delight. Mm-hmm. So how did this come about and, and, and what did slowing the pace of the game down do to help your performance? Uh, well, the, the, the crux of it was, is I didn't realize I was doing it. Um, in my head, the game was still going a million miles an hour. And, um, you know, they said, Oh, you only do it when there's guys on base. I was like, okay, well, it still felt the same as when there was nobody on base. So uh, literally didn't even like sit down and time it until I got to New York. And um, yeah, I, I, if you would have asked me at the end of one of those games, yeah, I'd say, yeah, it was a two and a half hour game every single time, you know, and you know, three hours back then, three hours and five minutes yeah. back then was long. Now those are quick games, but uh, it was definitely not something conscious. Um when we started kind of breaking it down a little bit, when I got to New York, um, we were kind of going through my process. I was doing a lot of visualization in my head where a lot of guys will visualize making a, executing a pitch, you know, once or twice, I was doing it four five, six times. So that probably didn't help. Um, but yeah, we got to the point where I had Charlie Huff in, in New York with a stopwatch and we started it in spring training and I'd come in in between and he would, he would, we would look at the, the times in between just to try to speed it up. And uh, it never got, great it definitely got better um no one's ever going to accuse me of being glendon rush like you know it's kind of, you know but uh or mark burley but um it was something that did improve but never got great so before we move on to, to the rest of the questions that digress for a second when you watch today's game and you see how long the games are what do you view how do you react and to the call to speed up, you know, what do you think can be done? It's it's difficult, and and, and to be honest, after I, when I got done playing, my dad gave me a bunch of tapes that he had recorded, and I was I went through the process of switching them over to see you know just DVDs and such, 
And I actually started watching a couple of them and I was like dumbfounded, like, oh my God, this is really, really slow. <laughs> so even, even after I got done playing, I was still shocked at some of the games, but nowadays, yeah, I don't, I mean, I just, they've made so many changes to speed things up and they've gone the complete backwards and I'm on the, I'm on the purest side where they should have never messed with the game as it was. Um, you know, there was a handful of guys that were slow like me or maybe a little shade quicker, but for the most part, the game was always under three hours. So I don't think they ever should have messed with it. And, um, I think they need to take a step back and reexamine all of that. So things seem to click after your stint down in Tidewater uh, and working with um, uh, Harvey Dorfman to help get that mental aspect of your game under control. Um, you won a career high 16 games, posted a 3.78 ERA, your second straight year leading the Mets in ERA. You also become the first Mets player in history to pitch two one hitters in a season. That season, while not DeGrom and Scherzer, the two top pitchers for the Mets were Glavin and Leiter. How much do you think, you know, Taiwan Walker and Carlos Carrasco are going to benefit from having Jake and Mad Max at the top of the rotation this season? Um, God, there's so many possibilities. Um, you know, you know, Scherzer always goes deep into ball games. DeGrom usually does as well. Um, so if they allow them to continue to do that, that's going to help keep bullpens fresh. So when those two guys go out there and they're going to get fresh guys coming out of the bullpen when needed. So when, when those bullpen guys are taxed, you know, that just kind of ex exacerbates, you know, whatever situation they're coming into. If they're coming in, you know, second and third one out, I want the freshest guy out there, especially now in the game with everybody's, you know, throwing power fastballs and getting strikeouts. Those guys are taxed. Their control is not going to be as, as good. And those end up being, you know, the starting pitchers runs out there. So inherited runners become really important with it, you know, between a, a tired bullpen or not. Um, the learning curve that, I mean, if those two guys are going back to back, you're, you're not leaving the, the dugout. You're sitting there watching every single pitch, trying to go pick up everything that they're doing. Um, you know, whether it be pitch sequences, preparation, pregame, uh, in between innings, what they're doing in the dugout, you know, I, I one thing that surprised me with Scherzer this year, because I got to watch him in L.A., is how much he talks to the other guys on the team. And then he doesn't talk to anybody on the day that he's pitching. And I was kind of like that. I, mean, I, I was never wanting to talk to anybody but my catcher or the pitching coach on the day that I pitched. And I used to watch Pedro all the time, try to see what he was doing. And he, he could get in and out of this mental zone and talk to a guy. I remember that one game when all the sprinklers went off in the, in the, on the outfield. And he just flipped into this, having the great time, laughing and all that. Those sprinklers turned off and it was like a fraction of a second and he was back in the zone. I was never able to be that. I, it took me an hour pregame to get into that zone. And once I was there, I didn't want to have anything to interrupt that or get me out of it. So if you can learn how to do those things, Harvey, you brought up Harvey Dorfman. That was big for me. One, it helped me speed up because it you know, helped me finally you know, narrow down you know, my thought process and make that quicker and less, you know, I'd be after a game, I'd be mentally worn out and they'd be, well, wonder why you're, you're visualizing a pitch seven times and you're throwing 110 pitches. You're, so you're visualizing yourself throwing a pitch a thousand times a game. We narrow that down to 200. You're, you're going to be more mentally strong at the end of a ball game. Your game's going to be a lot quicker. And if we can narrow it down, we usually use the word mantra quite a bit. If you get a quick mantra in between pitches, 
you know, it's easier to, you know, forget the bad stuff and just focus on the good things you're doing. So um, the possibilities for those two guys to learn are, are endless. Sticking with the current Mets, you look at the the four guys they brought in via free agency, and they all come with the tag, a great clubhouse guy. Uh, when the Orioles acquired you, the great Andy McFowl said they brought you in because of your professionalism and work ethic, and you, they thought you'd be a good example for the young pitchers in the clubhouse. How much can a new player change the culture of a clubhouse? Um, I guess it depends on the clubhouse they're coming into to start with, um, you know, it's the clubhouses nowadays are completely different than I hate using that word my day. Um, you know, the, the cell phones and the earbuds um, have really cut down on, on the guys actually hanging out in the clubhouse and talking, whatever. I mean, we would talk baseball before the game, after the game, on the bus, on the plane. Now guys put their earphones on and they don't really kind of talk much to anybody. Um, you see now like all the, well, I don't know if you want to call it hazing, but the, you know, the rookie, the rookie pranks and jokes, nobody knew about those for years. They've been going on forever. Now they're on Instagram. <laughs> you know, you, you got used to dress up the rookies Now you can't dress them up because people get upset. So um, that lightheartedness that you have to keep to keep guys light and, and fresh some is, has gone away a little bit. So, um, you know, plus the, the, there's more reporters than ever, you know, I'm sure Twitter and Instagram have their own reporters in the, in the clubhouses now. So, uh, you know, but bringing in like a veteran guy, someone who's been around, you know, I, I was more of kind of a, like a lead by example type guy. When I got to Baltimore, I wasn't like a vocal guy. I'm not going to go in there and give you a, a, a speech to, to get everybody fired up or anything like that. I was going to, you know, go back to that where I did with the Cubs. You learn that process, which gives you success over the long time. So that was what I was trying to, you know, show to those young, those younger players back then. But, um, you know, if, if in a, New York is tough with a clubhouse because of the number of reporters and um, you, you can't do a lot of the things that used to be done, or you could get away with in a smaller, you know, like a, maybe call it a Houston or a Kansas city where there's four reporters, you know, where in New York, you've got 40. So, um, it, it, the past two years, Steve, they haven't let reporters in the clubhouse. What do you think is going to happen? How will things change if they start letting them back in this year? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, that would probably that actually sounds like a dream to not have reporters <laughs> in the clubhouse ever. Um, <laughs> no, they're and they. I just remember they were always angling to get in when they weren't supposed to be in there, and they're constantly trying to get that little angle of, you know. If the reporters are coming in at 2.30, I want to get in at 2.25 because I might get something in that five minutes that they're not going to get. Um, I'm not real familiar with the new clubhouse at City Field, but I'm sure it's way bigger than Shea. Yeah, it's huge. There's, there's probably some more hiding places. <laughs> <laughs> so we used to have to go into the back of the food room or we'd try to hide in the training room just to kind of give ourselves a little bit of a break. Um, yeah, there's probably a lot more hiding places now. Um, but they're always – they're always in there angling. We used to catch guys, you know, like trying to eavesdrop on the most mundane conversations we'd have just in case they could pick something up. And then they'd go, Hey, you know, they'd go over and start stuff, you know, with other players. Um, so you have to really be careful with them, but I, I'm, I would be shocked that they wouldn't be angling to get in there as soon as possible. 
So in 2004, you experienced a career first, your own bobblehead, and nothing short of the <laughs> Hall of Fame says you've arrived in baseball more than a bobblehead. So first off, do you own one? And second, you know, how did that come about and what did it mean to you? Um, I do. I own, I have to check. I, I, there are all, there's a, one in my office and then there's maybe six or eight left in my garage. Um, I don't know for 100%. <laughs> but I do believe probably 99% was all due to Al Leiter. So I, I tip my hat to Al for this. Um, we used to joke, you know, at the beginning of the year that the, you know, they put out the promotions list of all the stuff and I was never on one. I was never one on in Chicago and, you know, never one in New York. So we started joking. Oh, what could we do? You know, we're like, Oh, we could do a stopwatch or we could do a sundial. You know, And, and I used to bring wine on the planes, you know, to, to kind of, build that camaraderie it's like oh we could do corkscrews i'm like oh no that'd be you know the security guards would take them all and then all of a sudden out of nowhere these this, these bobbleheads showed up and uh, i knew nothing about it when they came and my understanding was i gave them away to like one section or one row on days i pitched or something um so yeah i had no notice of it happening until it happened but uh i think al Leiter was pretty much behind it and probably did it just to get me to shut up talking about it. Well, the fact that you just said that you have six of them in your garage, I, I have a feeling <laughs> that that somehow is going to make its way to Bobby Wine and, and Doug Flynn, and you might get fined in kangaroo court for that out of that fantasy cap, owning six. Well, apparently, they're, they're pretty valuable, so if there's that, I can, I'll be able to pay the fine. I'll sell one of them on eBay or something. So you mentioned that you brought wine on the planes, and you are a big wine enthusiast. Actually, you're a level one sommelier and own a collection of more than uh, 1,500 hundred bottles how do uh, how do the wines from the the great late tom siebers uh um, vineyard stack up and uh how did you get into wines yeah well i'm up to three thousand bottles now so whoa <laughs> yeah um, I, i'm officially out of space um you know i just towards the end of chicago i just started kind of you know dabbling in wine and kind of seeing how it worked with food and then uh, when I got to New York, it really just exploded. Um, everything comes to New York. You know, it all starts in New York and then kind of spreads its way across the country. And um, Bobby Valentine introduced me to a, a guy that's been become a great friend of mine. His name was Bill Apolito, was working for Cobran back in the day. He's been with multiple different uh, import companies. And uh, we played in a golf tournament together. And I, we went on the road and I came back and there was three cases of wine in my apartment from all the, all different countries, one from Italy, a case from France and a case from California and a note saying, Hey, just drink these on the plane, take your notes. And, uh, we'll talk about, you know, getting you starting and collecting at the end of the year, but on the plane, you know, I'd pull the cork just back when we could smoke on the plane. So there'd be a section of guys smoking cigars and playing cards and other guys, you know, I'd, sit in a different section and I just kind of pop a couple bottles. I had glassware and uh, guys would come back and sit and just kind of taste wine and just, and again, talk about baseball, talk about, you know, life. You know, Mike would always sit, Mike guys would sit up, you know, maybe midway in the plane and I'd get up there and I'd just put a glass of wine in front of them, tap them on the shoulder, give them the finger. Hey, boys in the back want to see it. And you'd come back and hang out. And, you know, it's just kind of a way to, to build that team camaraderie. Um, you know, when I got done playing, I just kind of started pursuing, you know, more things that were wine, whether it had been 
you know, vineyards or importing or, you know, like the sommelier thing just became, you know, I wanted to learn more about collecting and how it works with food. And, uh, yeah, it's just something I love, have a huge passion for. And, um, I'm looking forward to doing some more traveling when everything starts opening up again. So I can learn a lot more about it around the world. So somebody wants to give a bottle of wine as a Christmas gift. What do you recommend to them? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's so many variables. Um, I mean, there's so many great varieties, price points. Um, there's a wine I like. It's called Blackbird. Uh, it's about $40 a barrel. Uh, it's, it's called Arise, A-R-I-S-E. It's it's a well-rounded Merlot-based wine. So it, it's got some power almost to the Cabernet level. And uh, if not, it has a little bit of finesse for those like Pinot. So it kind of fits right in the middle. Um, go back to Tom Seaver's wines. You know, his his wines are, are some of the best. Um you know, I was, was lucky enough to go go up to and see his property and, and talk to him, you know, about his wines even before it was coming out. You know, he would he, when he was still doing TV, he would, he would sit in spring training and talk about he, he was running label ideas by me, naming ideas because he didn't want to just call it Tom Seaver wine. He wanted it to stand on its own as its own individual, you know, product. And uh, yeah, his his property is beautiful. It's in some of the best area there is in Napa. His winemaker is one of the top you know, in the world, his vineyard manager's one of the top as well. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately he doesn't make enough. It's, it's a small property. They don't make a lot of it. And when you're able to get it, you just have to jump all over it. Wow. Steve, thanks so much for your time tonight. More importantly, thanks for sharing some great baseball insight with me and my son, Josh, to and from the ballpark, uh, down in Met fantasy camp, as well as tonight, look forward to uh, seeing you down at Port St. Lucie again, hopefully one day soon. Oh, well, I hope we'll see you at the ballpark. Be a lot more. <laughs> we can, yeah, we well, can share more beers. <laughs> you got it. Uh, former New York Met, number 11 on their all-time wins list, Steve Track.